out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. The guy behind you won't leave you alone. Ring, ring goes the bell. Now back you for talk out of school. Then you all say yo. Hello to the Tribe of Love, listening to today's broadcast of Talk Out of School. Bienvenidos a todos, bienvenidos, mi familia. Welcome, my family, WBAI listeners. My name is Daniel Alicea. My pronouns are he and his, and I am the proud son of Manny and Alma. And I welcome you today to another episode of Talk Out of School. I'm coming to you once more from WBAI listener-sponsored, locally-controlled, non-commercial radio in New York City. We are found on 99.5 FM on your radio dial. This is a Pacifica radio station, and we are also being live-streamed on WBAI.org. At Talk Out of School, we focus on the issues affecting public schools and public education here in New York City, on the state level, and nationally. And if you would like to download a podcast of this episode later, you can find us on the WBAI archives or on Apple or Spotify. What a show we have for you today. Today, we will be speaking to educators about the school calendar controversy, especially a petition that is going around by uh, educators and parents really concerned about the two days of Passover that we're taking from the school calendar. Uh, We'll be speaking to Melissa Williams. She is the chapter leader of the Occupational and Physical Therapists who helped organize this campaign letter that is going around. And also Jessica Lerner, who is a occupational therapist in New York City Public Schools. We will also discuss other problems that educators and school communities are having with this new school calendar. Also, we'll listen to excerpts from yesterday's Parents Action Conference Hosted by Class Size Matters and NYC Kids Pack. We'll listen to our co-host Lainey Hainson head a session on the class size law. Will New York City comply? I'm on the line with Melissa Williams. She is the rock star chapter leader of Occupational and Physical Therapists, OTPTs, and a union organizer. Welcome, Melissa, again to talk out of school. Thank you for um, taking this issue seriously. I appreciate you. Well, the wait is over, right? The 2023-2024 school calendar for the New York City Department of Education was finally rolled out. I believe on June 4th, there's been a lot of expectation on it. Um, Weeks and weeks of educators and parents waiting on this calendar. And so we know that the first day of classes is September 7th. Teachers report two days before. And the state requires 180 instructional days, but this calendar, there's 182 school days for students since some of the holidays fall on weekends. And many teachers and some parents, especially in certain populations, are complaining about other issues with this calendar, whether it be extra work days, up to about five extra work days are in this calendar. And then there are those that celebrate or observe various religious holidays even Veterans Day is not being in this calendar. So can you walk us through, um, you are heading a, a petition, but just as a chapter leader, what are you hearing about this calendar? So 
I'll go back to the Friday that it was released in the late afternoon, which seems to be a pattern. Um, and within 10 minutes, I got two emails from therapists who were concerned about it. One who I have a relationship with, who's an itinerant therapist. So she's kind of the one that I go to to get information about how things are going for itinerant therapists. And she said to me, um, is this going to be the start of, of the DOE taking away our Jewish holidays? I'm so frustrated and I didn't know who else to go to but you. So um, over the weekend, me and I reached out to a PT named Naomi Engelman and we deep dove into the research, went back and looked at all the calendars. And the only thing that we could find was 1986 that a court ordered um, the schools to be open the first two days of Passover. Uh, and, but that was at a time when the Board of Ed wasn't all together like it is now. And of course, there was no mayoral control then. Um, so I'm hearing from therapists who are like, your inbox is going to be flooded with angry people on Monday. And so I really wanted to get ahead of that. So I reached out to the people that I know are in WhatsApp groups with therapists who uh, strictly observe Jewish religious holidays to just be like, you know what, let people know that I'm on it. I'm trying to figure it out. Um, so then I was trying to figure out how to write a sign-on letter. I'm not techie at all. Uh, it's not in my zone of proximal development. So I did a search in my own inbox and used a template from the education, uh, the council consortium of CECs, and then also reached out to an ed activist WhatsApp chat. Like, is this the best way to do this sign on letter? So all of that really went really quickly with the help of just a few people. And by last Monday, so it's not even a week, had the sign-on letter and really just sent it out in, in formal networks. I haven't done a press release yet. It got press on its own. So that's the way that sort of naturally unfolded. But it, the spark of that was one therapist emailing me saying, what are we going to do about this? So to frame this for our listeners, as part of this calendar for next year mm -hmm. uh, typically in most years eastern passover um, due to the lunar calendar usually things seem to align so that um, those that that observe easter and all eight days of passover usually get a spring break um, and teachers and parents don't have to worry about um, getting their kids to school and many of the other issues that come up with with work and then religious observance. So this year, the last two days of Passover are not school holidays. And so, right. I, you know, looking at our, our, our educator population, almost 25% of our, our teachers are Jewish. Mm -hmm. um, and there, there are these holidays that now are not going to be observed. There are other holidays as well. Um, for example, in the school calendar, Eid falls on a Sunday, Sunday, and that's an Islamic 
uh, holiday, but um, in, in their tradition, they go from Sunday to Monday. And even that was chopped off this, this, this list of, uh, of, the, of the calendar. And then you take Veterans Day. Other school districts in New York State are observing it on the Friday since it's, it, it is a federal holiday, but it, it's falling on a Saturday. So can you take us through that as well? But I, I definitely do want to talk about this petition. I, where are you at as far as signatures? It, it looks like there is a quite, quite a bit of groundswell around this religious observance um, being taken away and the extra days as well. Yeah, I just, I haven't looked at it since Friday. I just pulled it up. We're at, we were at 4,108 when we started talking. We just got a, a signature while we've been sitting here talking. So 4,109 in, in less than a week when I really, I haven't had to do that much work to, and I haven't really had the capacity to spread it in a way that it, it would, could have had more numbers. Um, but yeah, and, and there are obviously Jewish names on here, but there are also people who don't appear Jewish. And I've even received emails saying, you know, I'm not Jewish, but this is not okay. Um, that your holiday is being used as sort of an arena as give backs or not respected fully as it has been in the past. And I tell you what, I'm one of those uh, signatures. Um, yeah, there's a few issues here, whether they be cultural responsiveness or even a, a union organizing issue. Um, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I mean, this this situation has really shown me the the political and the the union organizing moment that we're in because um, there are some people in progressive union organizing spaces who have said you're only advocating for a small but powerful group, which is a anti-Semitic trope. You know, um, there have been uh, union staff members who have publicly said this sign-on letter isn't effective. Uh, and then Obviously, 4,109 people felt that it wasn't, and we got press from the JTA. So it's really shown me where we're at um, and what these kind of issues, who, who labels it as a problem and who is willing to help uh, a marginalized group and I'll, I'll tell you what, we're looking at not just those two days, but so many other days. And But I would really like to zone in on, on the issues it brings up for those that, um, like all traditions, um, there are folks that celebrate certain days over others. And even within the Jewish tradition, those that I, I believe that are more orthodox um, really focus on on the last two days as well. The first mm -hmm. day of Passover and then the last two. Uh, yes. I may be speaking out of turn here, but um, how does this affect um, those that will have to take the religious observance those last two days? How are they feeling about what's going on? The people that I've talked to and including myself in this are like, well, it's not surprising. Right. But it's disappointing. 
but at the end of the day, and this goes for, I think, all, all minority religious communities, we're going to do what we have to do regardless. We're not looking for validation um, from the majority culture. So at the end of the day, if people have to take the days unpaid, they'll take them unpaid and they're going to celebrate their holidays regardless. Um, but I think the fact that the city felt that they could take these days away and add unpaid labor to our calendar on the backs of our holiday just feels like so not in line with respect for all, which the DOE says that they have, you know, with respect, we don't hear what you say, we see what you do. And this is not respect. I agree. Whether it's the religiously observant or just workers, um, there's, there is a level of disrespect here that, um, that needs to be exposed. And I really want to thank you and those who have organized around this letter to really bring up some of these issues, whether they be religious observance or just the fact that we're, we're now looking at five unpaid work days. I know the union sent out or Michael Mogu sent out a, an email, but seemed to never address these two issues in that email, but rather talked about some added snow days, um, the DOE putting out a calendar with, uh, without making a, a proper agreement, something about um, an older agreement that talks about uh, us going back to what to do with the 150 minutes that are in our contract that we would have to go to giving tutorial time, 37.5 minutes at the end of the school day versus some of the other things that we, we typically do now with that time. So your, your thoughts on that, that uh, um, our union has not really addressed what's a, what's really bothering educators here and parent communities. So, you know, I'm on Twitter and after the, the JTA article about this issue came out and Nathaniel Steyer, who's the press secretary for the DOE, he said the union never, ever brought this up in conversations about the calendar. We've received, I think, three emails. I don't know if all of them went out to everybody. I think the first two only went out to chapter leaders. And the union never explicitly addressed the, the adding of days until the one that we got Friday. And then they added this little line about adding unnecessary days. But when Nathaniel Sire says that the UFT never brought it up, I believe him because of the way that the communications have been worded from the UFT. And also in this instance, I don't know why he would have a reason to lie. Um, because if, if it wasn't the truth, then the UFT and their official communications could be like Nathaniel Steyer said this, but that's not the truth. And that hasn't been said. So I tend to agree or believe that it probably wasn't brought up by our union. And, and that's a problem because that tells me that there aren't enough Jews in leadership positions in the UFT. Um, or those that are but, sensitive to the issues, the, the, the many issues our membership has. Yes. Yeah. Um, one last question as chapter leader of OTPTs, I understand that there's a different, um, consequence to having to take religious observance days. 
Can you talk a little bit about how educators are still compensated um, under the title of teacher, but not the same for OT and PTs? Yes. So when teachers in speech take religious observance days, um, there is a mechanism for them to get their pay minus what a sub costs. Now, that's what I've seen recently in the paperwork or online on the UFT website. I'm not like an expert on that, but that's just what I see. I believe they, can, OT also, they can also use their three personal days if they haven't used them. So it's almost as if you haven't used up your three personal days, then they will deduct the sub pay. Right. But with OTs and PTs, because we don't have pay parity and we're not pedagogues, we are um, administrative employees, then it's our three personal days and then that's it. That's unpaid. And for Jewish religious observance, people that strictly follow, there are days, there are years where you would have to pay, take four unpaid days just for the holiday of Sukkot. So it's, and depending on how it fell out, that could be in one paycheck. So, you know, people that work for the DOE, they understand that. That's fine. And even, even if next year we couldn't get to the 180 days because we were having respect for other people's holidays, even that would be easier to swallow. But to take our religious observance of Passover away and add days to the calendar without pay, it's just a bridge too far. Yeah, I'm, I'm disturbed by it and disgusted. And, and those that are feeling that way, I had I had teachers in my building who, who came up to me and said, we, we feel like we are not wanted. At mm -hmm. this, and this is this is a long line of other issues that have been going on in the DOE, including um, when the, 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 the governor and, and the city said we would have to work during uh, the pandemic, all teachers would. Um, during um, spring break, which, uh, of course, Eastern Passover then would be affected and then said they would compensate those of us that that would that worked only to find out that those that took religious observance were were screwed out of the vacation days that. Were oh, there. Yeah. They, I'm sorry. Dana. There are <laughs> therapists who, who are still fighting three years later, mostly um, therapists who are part time. There are less than 100 uh, still fighting to get those days. And I mean, this was, and that includes many therapists who in, in consultation with their rabbis worked those intermediate days, uh, and only took off the last days without pay. And they're still fighting to get paid or they're being penalized because they were in negative car days because they're parents. So all of these issues intersect, in my opinion, and none of them and the treatment of people in gender respects. I'm with you. If someone wants to um, sign on to this petition, where can they go to do that? Okay, so if you would like to sign the petition, you could go to tinyurl.com slash Passover petition and be one of now over 4,100 people who are voicing their concern about the taking of these days. And so is there anything else you'd like to add uh, before we close out? Yeah, in our petition, we also mentioned the fact that a lot of after-school care is provided by Jewish nonprofits. 
Shout out to, for example, the Y of Washington Heights in Inwood, where my son went for years. And these organizations are typically closed on Jewish holidays. So if the school is open, there are going to be a lot of parents, even if they don't celebrate Passover, whose child care is going to be affected by the schools being open these days and yet not having after school care. Yeah, this affects everyone. Thank you so much, Melissa, for uh, championing this cause and bringing to light some of the issues related to it. Thank you again for being at Talk Out of School. Thanks for your help. I asked Jessica Lerner, an occupational therapist with the New York City Public Schools, about how she feels about this decision about eliminating the Passover days and how it affects her and her family and then lastly, I asked her um, how she feels about the, the DOE and UFT reaction to it. My family will be impacted financially by next year's calendar since it will be another two days that I will not be paid. We already lost the day of the first Passover Seder, which I took unpaid this year. Teachers get religious observance days, but OTs can use only up to three personal days and then religious days are unpaid. Since many Jewish holidays fall on the weekend in the 2023-24 calendar, I was hoping to get the day before Passover again, and I was hoping that we wouldn't have any unpaid this year, days this year. I was horrified to see our calendar moving backwards. When I first saw the calendar, my first instinct was to reach out to my union rep and let her know how disappointed I was with the union. I still don't understand the process of how the calendar is agreed upon, and I don't understand how the union would agree to a calendar with more educational dates. We kept hearing that the calendar is tight, the calendar is tight, but when I look at it, I see extra days. This is not only about losing our religious observance days, but about adding days to the calendar, and I don't understand why the union would allow this to happen. I wish there was more transparency between the DOE and the union. I understand that the union is too big to have every member vote on every single issue, but it doesn't seem like even my elected officials, such as my chapter leader, were aware of the calendar before it came out. It doesn't feel like the union as a whole is supporting us. I appreciate my chapter leader, Melissa, who does listen to our concerns and tries to do whatever she can to support us. But the DOE as a whole, does not feel like they are there to support us, and I don't understand it. In a city of diversity and inclusion, it just feels like things are getting worse instead of better for me. Other districts have been able to manage to still give off the last two days of Passover, and they have the same New York State regulations as we do, so I don't understand where everything fell apart. Inflation's going up, and I feel like I'm getting a pay cut. Now I have more unpaid days that I need to take, and you're having me work more without more pay. You're listening to Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM, also live streaming on WBAI.org. All right, folks, mi gente. Up next, we are sharing excerpts from a presentation that Laney gave at yesterday's Parent Action Conference, a conference that is that was hosted by Class Size Matters and the NYC Kids Pack. If you missed it, geez, you missed a lot. There were plenty of great sessions, and among those sessions is this session that Laney presented called The New Class Size Law, Is New York City Able to Comply? And so if you want to learn more about this conference, visit the Class Size Matters site, 
I believe there are going to be some videos and some presentation notes that you will be able to access in the coming days. If you want to follow these excerpts that we are about to play and you want to follow Laney's notes, you may go to tinyurl.com slash class size PDF. If you want to follow Laney in the following minutes, again, go to tinyurl.com slash class size PDF. All right. So uh, many of you probably know that there's a new class size law that was passed by the legislature last spring and signed into law by the governor um, in September. This is the new class size law that was passed last spring. It requires New York City to implement a five-year class size reduction plan. Um, Originally, it was supposed to start this fall. Now, um, after the governor agreed to sign it, it it's now going to begin next fall in September. It requires New York City to cap class sizes in all schools to no more than 20 kids per class in K through 3, 23 kids in 4 through 8, and 25 in high school in core academic subjects by the end of the, uh, the next five years. Phys ed and performing arts classes are supposed to cap at 40 instead of 50 where they are now. The academic, the other class sizes are much, much smaller than the union contractual um, caps, which have not been changed in over 50 years. Each year starting next fall, 20% of all uh, classes in all schools have to abide by these caps with an additional 20% every year until we get to 100% after five years. The city is supposed to prioritize schools with high levels of poverty first. DOE is supposed to hold hearings within a month of the state adopting the budget to take public input into account before submitting their final plan to the state. And those hearings are happening right now, and I'll get to that later. And before the final plan is um, submitted to the state for approval, the UFT and the CSA, the principal's union, have to agree to it as well. This is a new part of the law which um, was put in after the original law um, was was um, submitted or the original bill with the advocacy of the UFT. So that's a bit of a wild card. We don't know what's going to happen with that, but it's important to know. So what happened with class size? Last year, not this year, but the year before, in Rome, uh, class size did drop very sharply, and we had some of the smallest classes that we've ever had in the history of New York City schools in most districts. Why? Because enrollment was falling. For the first time, school budgets were not tied to enrollment. There was additional federal funding for COVID relief. And we did actually some surveys and interviews with teachers, parents, and principals saying for the first time ever, they felt that their kids really got the attention and support that they needed, especially coming out of the pandemic. But this year, there were big budget cuts. We talked a little bit about that in the opening session with Councilmember Avalis and also in the work in the breakout room that we did. But many of you may know that budgets were cut drastically in most schools, um, both through fair student funding, but also through the federal COVID funds. And so these uh, cuts led to sharp class size increases as well as the loss of many programs. A city controller estimated that 77% of schools had their fair student funding cut by a total of 469 million, but that was only a part of it. Um, As of January, schools' entire galaxy budgets, that's what their entire budgets are called, were cut by 822 million 
86% of schools suffered galaxy cuts uh, totaling um, almost $900 million or $655,000 each. So this is what happened to class size. This is citywide average class sizes since 2007. And what you can see at the very low point in 2020-21 is not fully accurate because at that point the, uh, the DOE was only capturing the class sizes of remote classes only. And this was in the depth of the pandemic. And as you know, many kids were doing remote learning or blended learning. So that data point does not reflect what the experience was for all students. But then you can see it, um, it, it was 21.2 um, last year and it's up to 22.2 this year. Um, but it was even lower on average in 2007, 2009, before we got all this new money from the state that was supposed to help lower class size. And it went up sharply um, from 2007 upward. And then it's been sort of like going down a little bit, but not very much. Um, and that mostly has to do with enrollment decline, not more effort by the, any administration on this. This is for fourth through eighth grade. Again, a similar pattern. Um, but class sizes actually went up in 2014. They went down sharply again, and then they've been going up since. And this is high school, which is different because a lot of high school class sizes did go down still um, this year compared to last year. But at the same time, the disparities across high schools are huge. So you can see that more than 232,000 kids are still in classes of 32 more, which are way above the caps, way above what they should be. We only counted kids in uh, high school social studies classes that large because we didn't want to double count them. But um, I'm sure it's many, many more students than that. And even in K through three and four through eighth grade, there are thousands of kids in classes of 30 or more this year. Um, and again, this was in October before the mig uh, many of the um, migrant children or refugee children came into the system. These are the class average K through three class sizes by school district. So what you can see here is how different it is across the city um, according to what district um, your child uh, attends. And so um, in district four, class sizes are very tiny, about 17 K through three. In, uh, in 28, they, it's up to 24.6. So you see huge disparities in class size. If we had individual schools class sizes on average, you would see even more of a range. This is four through eight. Similarly, um, you can see very small class sizes, about 20 in District 16, very large in District 26 in Queens of more than 28. The good news is that because of enrollment decline, 38% of the classes citywide this year did make the caps, but that was less than it was last year when 42% made the caps. So what that tells you, mostly because of enrollment decline, DOE is very likely to comply or almost certain to comply with the 20% caps next year without any effort whatsoever. They may or may not comply with um, the caps the year after in year two. It really depends on what happens to enrollment and school budgets. They definitely, I would say at this point, will not make the caps in years three to five without significant reforms to the capital plan and to enrollment policies. We need an expanded capital plan to build schools, especially in those areas of the city which are very, very overcrowded. And we need to cap enrollment at lower levels at extremely over-enrolled schools. 
neither which of which the DOE is planning to do at this point. We have been losing K-12 teachers. We've lost over 4,000 K-12 teachers since 2019. This is also a problem. We are likely to lose teachers again next year. Why is this a problem, even though we're going to make the cap? To ramp up and to hire all the additional teachers we're going to need in years three to five is going to be quite a challenge. And to the extent that we're still losing teachers at this point, it's going to make it that much harder to be able to, to hire all the teachers we need in years three to five, especially in shortage areas like ELL, special education, et cetera. So this is a very bad trend, which we need to reverse. Unfortunately, given the mayor's um, current proposed budget, I don't think it's going to reverse. In fact, the city council projects that we're going to lose another 800 full-time teachers next year if this budget is adopted. So that trend will continue. We talked a little bit about this in the, um, our, our breakout group, but I, it's relevant here as well. The mayor claims not to be cutting school budgets, but is that true? Actually not. Why is it not true? What they say is that no school's initial budget this year is going to be cut compared to their initial budget last year. However, there may be mid-year adjustments, which means that if the school's uh, uh, population or enrollment is less than anticipated, schools will, may have to give back money, which they didn't, by the way, this year, but they may next year. In addition, what the DOE is doing to say that no school's budget is initially cut is schools where there are cuts in fair student funding are getting different budget allocations in different areas. Some of them cannot be used to hire teachers or keep teachers on staff. For example, there's additional money for some schools for professional development. There's additional money up front for paras. Um, there's additional money in lots of different areas that cannot be used to, to pay for teachers. Already we've heard from several schools that are going to access their teachers next year. There's another thing is, is that be put, by putting all this money up front, in, in past years they've given money to schools over the course of the year. So there have been uh, major budget allocations provided mid-year and even into May. This year, what they've done is pushed almost all of them at the front of the line, which means schools are going to get less money as the year goes on. One of our biggest concerns is the capital plan. As I mentioned, they're cutting way back on the capital plan. It would cut nearly $2.3 billion in new capacity compared to the plan that was adopted just in June 2021. Yet over about 38% of students were in overcrowded schools last year, according to the DOE Blue Book, which is their official enrollment capacity report. Uh, we believe it's still very likely over 30% are in overcrowded schools. The amount cut was for new capacity was cut first by 7.8 billion to 6.3 billion in the plan adopted last June. 11,000 net seats were cut. And then they just proposed an, another amendment to the capital plan in February that cut by another $820 million and put 11,000 additional seats into a category called funded for design only. What does that mean? It means there's no money to actually build new schools. They just have money to, to design. This is, this is the capital plan changes by school district. You can see the big cuts according to what school district you're in. If you're in a school district that's not listed, that means you have no seats in the capital plan at all. 
So the DOE never really explains the cuts in the capital plan in the document itself. In fact, in more than 800 pages of the, of the plans that were proposed since the law was passed and signed into law by the governor, they never even mentioned the new class size law. One of the reasons we think that they've cut the plan back is that they changed the school capacity formula in a very important way. So they did change the class size assumptions to the new class size assumptions that happened to be in the law. And they did that two years ago because this was also something that we that parents had been pushing for a long for a long time. But at the same time, they changed something called the efficiency ratio that undid all the good that it did and more by changing the class size assumptions. What is the efficiency ratio? It's what how many periods a day do you um, assume that your classrooms are going to be scheduled. And so they changed it for middle schools and high schools. Originally, they assumed that middle schools and high schools, their regular classrooms would be filled and scheduled seven out of eight periods and specialty rooms five out of eight periods. And now they changed it to assume that all of those rooms are scheduled every single period. And for most schools, that's impossible to do. Why, for example, if you have a dance room, it's impossible to schedule that as a regular classroom when your dance teacher is on her break or having lunch. Um, it's difficult to do that with computer rooms, science rooms, art rooms. Um, and in small schools, it's especially difficult to keep all your rooms scheduled in every single period. Uh, so that one change, even though they changed the class size assumptions at the same time to make them smaller, artificially added over 2,500 middle school seats and added over 20,000 high school seats um, to the blue book, assuming that there was that much more room in all of these schools. Um, this is this is the middle schools, how much they added um, by borough. You can see Brooklyn, they added 679 middle school seats without building one additional middle school. And this is high school, it's really extreme. Uh, more than 5,800 high school seats in Brooklyn, uh, more than 5,600 high school seats in Queens. We calculated the need for schools in three different ways. And again, this is very hypothetical. Um, we did it because people asked us for it. But again, we don't really know what it's going to end up being. But we used the latest capacity enrollment figures from last year's Blue Book. And then we did it um, using middle school and high school capacity with the original efficiency ratio and the original class size assumptions. And then we did it with the latest enrollment data from last year with the original efficiency ratio, but adjusted for smaller classes. We need an additional 48,000 to 100,000 new seats, depending on what rate, what, what formula you use. Now, again, these are based on last year's blue book, but there have been changes. Our enrollment has gone down somewhat which is, you know, makes it a little bit easier. However, the Blue Book does not take into account the need uh, for specialized rooms, intervention rooms, and issues related to co-located schools. And there are many schools that are listed under capacity that still lack cluster rooms and rooms for intervention services. And that's why you see so many kids getting their services in hallways and closets. Future um, enrollment trends are difficult to predict. You've seen all the new migration of refugee children this year, but actually um, census figures show that the increase of immigration started um, at a very high rate this year. So um, immigration rates in general, even before the recent migrant surge, 
has been going up and are similar now as they were 10 years ago when school overcrowding was increasing every year. So we have to take into account that, that these migration rates um, of families into the city are, are changing quite substantially now. Uh, something else that I think is important to take into account is the reducing class size can lure more parents to either enter the public school system or um, um, stay in the public school system. The chancellor often says he wants to attract more families, and this is something that could actually do it. Um, and it was actually shown in California that when they reduced class sizes in the early grades, it attracted more parents from charter schools and private schools. And this could definitely happen again in New York City and must be acknowledged. Um, and then there's also building starts, which are happening throughout the city, and that change uh, the, 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 the way in which um, students are, are moved to different parts of the city or, or live in different parts of the city. And according to the DOE data, we need about an extra 40,000 seats from building starts. We also think that reforms need to be considered to admit admissions uh, policies because many fewer seats would need to be built if we equalized enrollment across the um, city. Um, many In many parts of the, of the city, um, in many districts, there are very overcrowded schools that lie very close to very underutilized schools. And that would allow the very overcrowded schools, not just to lower class size, but to have lunch at more reasonable times, um, you know, have, have, have a more reasonable schedule, um, not have to bump into each other in the hallway all the time. For underutilized schools, it would allow them to have more sustainable budgets. Right now, they're very much um, underutilized schools are very have very cramped budgets. Um, and we also believe it would create more diversity across the city because as it turns out, the most overcrowded schools also tend to be the schools that are most heavily white and Asian. Uh, there are more than 34,000 empty 3K and pre-K seats in CBOs and DOE pre-K centers uh, next year, moving more of 3K and pre-K classes out of overcrowded elementary schools would create a lot more space for smaller classes. And we think this would be beneficial for other reasons as well. CBOs tend to have higher quality ratings than our elementary schools in one of the two rating systems that the DOE does. The other rating system, they rate equally, and many of them are able to offer a longer hours and a longer um, school year as well. It would also uh, create more sustainable budgets for the CBOs. Just as underutilized public schools have hard time doing everything they need to do with their budgets, CBOs do as well when they have empty seats because they're funded by how many students they have. And this is an ongoing issue for CBOs that they've complained about for years, especially under Bill de Blasio, because he insisted on putting a lot more kids into overcrowded elementary schools and taking them out of the CBOs where they had been served in those neighborhoods for generations. After a lot of advocacy by Class Size Matters and CPAC and other parent groups, the DOE did form a Class Size Working Group. Um, as as uh, Joanna said, she's the co-chair of it. I'm on it, which is a nice surprise and was very pleased that I got appointed. But the draft plan that the DOE put out, according to the state calendar uh, about two weeks ago, takes no steps 
in terms of funding or any of these policy choices to make it easier to comply with the law. They Instead, they mention all the time that they formed a working group, which will help them come up with proposals. But the working group will not only come out with recommendations until the end of October, which will be too late to do anything about the capital plan, where we believe it's really important to get that expanded now because it takes at least five years to site and build a school. So where we need more schools, they will not be built in time. Um, instead, the DOE, the chancellor and the deputy chancellor both say uh, that they may have to put in a lot of trailers, which is something that nobody wants and is totally unnecessary if they would put the steps in necessary right now to build enough schools in those areas. And number two, that they may have to sacrifice other critical programs um, to pay for teachers. And so what I really worry about is that they're not putting in the planning now that need that needs to happen now, and they're not prepared to really fund this in the way that needs to be funded. And then they're gonna get to years three or four. Um, I don't even know whether the mayor will still be the mayor at that point, but then they'll say it's too late to do anything um, unless we wanna cut art and music and after school programs and put in trailers. So that's my fear anyway. So how can you help? Uh, call and email your council member, insist on no budget cuts to schools this year. We will have a script about that. Ask them, um, urge them to expand rather than contract the capital plan. There is a bill that was just introduced this week um, on Thursday, I think, um, that we were pushing for, which amends the class size reporting law to actually require more detailed class size reporting by schools so that we actually know which schools are complying and which are not. Right now, the way they report data at the school level is by averages and ranges rather than actual um, each school at, at what, uh, what size, what class size. And also adds a, a, make sure that the second reporting period actually reflects class sizes at the second half of the year instead of what it does now, which is just the audited October 31st data. Why is that important? Because class sizes change during the course of the year. We know with the migrant students that, it, that a lot of class sizes gotten larger, but also because the law requires compliance at the end of the school year rather than at the beginning of the school year. Uh, we're also asking the council to create a new unit of appropriation that would be a subset of general education and special ed units of, uh, units of appropriations to actually reflect school level funding for the year. So we know in advance and we aren't continually fooled by the tricks that DOE likes to play. Um, and we're going to be making a big push on that as well. There was a, a law passed in 2018 that required DOE to provide all the data that they base their estimations on seats needs and their capital plan upon, um, as well as the methodology they use, but they have not yet complied with that law in many, many respects. Um, the enrollment projections that they post from their consultants do not include any 3K, District 75, District 79, or co-located charter school students. Um, which are taking up more and more space in our public schools, especially charter school students, uh, very rapidly growing. Uh, seats needs in the capital plan do not, or the seats constructed uh, or, or to be built do not differentiate elementary and middle school, which is means every time you build a middle school, that's, that automatically takes away the need for an elementary school, according to the way the DOE appears to do it. They used to have a separate line that said seats needed and, and, and from seats funded, they took away that extra line actually. 
and the actual methodology is not provided. Instead, they say, we look at all this data and then we uh, use a qualitative analysis and various strategies to address need. And that's what they've done. And it simply is not uh, compliant with the law. And then there was another law uh, passed that was supposed to allow them, um, um, force them to analyze all the empty lots, both privately and publicly owned throughout the city to see whether they would be appropriate to build a school on because many times schools are funded, but the DOE says we can't find space for it. The task force met only twice, had no input from the council or parent members, um, put out a, a, a two page report, which I had to foil along with the spreadsheet, which ruled out thousands of empty lots, publicly owned uh, lots for reasons that made no sense to us. They said no seats needed, even though seats were funded in those districts and not yet cited and never looked at over 22,000 privately owned sites. So one of the recommendations that I'm hoping to make to the working group and hoping that the working group will make is for them to go back and do that analysis because really they should have done it in the first place. So you can also participate in the borough hearings that are happening now. Um, I, there's the link to their non-plan plan. Um, there are hearings th uh, this week on Tuesday um, and on um, Thursday for the Bronx, but no matter where you live, you can participate in these hearings. The, the borough hearings are more important than the CEC hearings because the DOE is supposed to provide a transcript of those hearings and the public comment to the state. And they're supposed to take that comment into account in the revised uh, plan that they put out for the state to approve. If the state doesn't approve it, they can hold back money. Um, and if they don't make their targets, the state can hold back money. So it's really important um, for for people to have their voices heard. As a community member and as a teacher, I still have really big concerns about compliance and then enforcement. And so um, I'm hearing a lot about two big concerns with capital funding and also how the DOE is already starting to subvert um, using the Blue Book and some of the artificial funding. So I guess my question is, what could be done to really put some real pressure on those two issues, um, whether it be through litigation? And I know there's already some legislation that's being um, spoken about, but it would seem to me that it's bad faith if they're already playing around with this efficiency formula. And I think that ties into some of the things that already are going on with building utilization. Are they also using this efficiency formula when it comes to building utilization, and can that be tied into some existing legislation or litigation? Um, and the second question I have is, I, I guess maybe you can answer that one, and then I have a second question about um, what teachers could be doing. I think it's too early to talk about litigation. You know, Daniel, I'm always very eager to uh, file lawsuits, and I've helped file lawsuits um, in my time. There is an aspect of this that is actually being litigated now, which I did not mention in my PowerPoint, which has to do with the co-locations that were proposed and some of the relocations of schools that were proposed. Um, in the EISs or the educational impact statements of two charter school co-locations, um, one in the Brooklyn and one in Queens, and now the relocation of, of a transfer school, Westside, high school into another school across town and the co-location of another transfer school into the building of another transfer school. Um, 
the EISs did not mention the new class size law and instead explicitly said that their estimations of space were based upon the instructional footprint, the current instructional footprint, which assumes current class sizes will continue into the future. And so the UFT and parents and teachers at the two co-located schools in Queens and in Brooklyn that are seeing um, uh, new success academy co-locations um, did file a lawsuit on the grounds partly on the grounds that the EISs did not take into account the new class size law. Uh, many years ago, I emailed, I found out that a, a school co-location was, or merger, I think it was, I think it was a school merger in District 16 was gonna double class size. And I found that out from a presentation that district planning did, but it was not mentioned in the EIS. And so I emailed district planning and I said, why is it that you never mention in the EIS the doubling of class size? You're supposed to describe educational impacts, and that's a very profound educational impact, doubling of class size. And they said, because it's not specifically mentioned in the state law, we feel like we don't have to mention it. So this is something that we are now testing out in court, the fact that they don't discuss class size because there is this one lawsuit and I think there's gonna be another lawsuit on these transfer schools that are being relocated and co-located on the very same grounds that the EISs, all of them that the DOE uh, put forward this year after the class size bill was changed into law did not take into account the new class size law. And you cannot assume that class sizes are gonna continue forever in the future. So we'll test that part out in court, there's a court, uh, just if people are interested, uh, Success Academy sued to intervene. Uh, our judge, Lyle Frank, who's the same judge that, that was uh, the budget cuts uh, lawsuit was won on initially, uh, said, we don't need you, Success Academy. They appealed that. The appeal court um, has not finally decided their intervention, but they said this case should go ahead without them at this point. So we're gonna have hearings in court soon on that one. And there may be another lawsuit, as I mentioned on this transfer school, which by the way, the instructional footprint does, does say that transfer schools are the only schools that according to instructional footprint are supposed to have smaller class sizes of 25. Um, and yet they, a lot of them already have class sizes of 30 and those class sizes will grow if these proposals go through. So there is gonna be litigation that's tangentially re uh, related to this. I don't think it's time to file a lawsuit over what DOE is or is not doing in the future. It's, it's very premature on that. Um, I think that political pressure is important. I know that, that it was either Robert Jackson or John Luke said, um, you know, you, you're, you're going to be asking for mayoral control to be renewed one of these days soon. And we're going to take into account what you're doing on class size. And, and there are lots of political pressure points that we're going to have to try to worry about. And there's the state education department, which in many ways is going to have the most influence over this because they do have the power to hold back money. Mm -hmm. Um, and we all have to be very aware of what, um, you know, the plan looks like what the revised plan looks like, what we then say to the state about whether they will accept the revised plan. The last time we went through this process in 2007, we did not have a good state education commissioner. Um, and they made all sorts of deals with DOE, letting them basically uh, uh, violate the law. 
We made the law stronger this time with the help of the legislature to allow for the holding, specifically withholding state funds. Um, and I think that we need to uh, be, and we, I think we have a better commissioner now, honestly, who is potentially on our side. So I think all those factors come into play and the city council as well, which has the power not to approve this capital plan. Yeah, I think that the compliance issue is still a concern when we look at other mandates in the state, you know, whether it be libraries, art, PE, all of these are state mandates and we're watching the state and the city not comply. Um, and so those are really big concerns. I guess my, uh, my follow-up question, you did mention that contractually the, the UFT does not have um, class size limits that match the state law. What could parents and educator uh, advocates do to pressure our union to make contractual caps match the state law? I know there's some conversations that go on. I think some of those conversations should happen. Yeah, I mean, the, the UFT and the, and the CSA have ultimate veto power. What I worry about most, I, I can't. I, I don't want, you know, I'm not interested in getting involved in pressuring the union one way or the other on their contract. But what I am worried about them at this point is the fact that they have a veto power is good because it gives us more leverage. And at this point, both unions are on record saying they do want a strong, effective class size reduction plan. And the UFT has also begun lobbying the city council on the capital plan on last week, which I was very happy to hear about. But if they don't agree on the revised plan, it goes into arbitration. And that arbitration theoretically could take weeks, if not months, and slow down the whole process. And then we wouldn't even go to the state until God knows somewhere in the middle of the year. And the whole process could kind of get screwed up by that. So what I'm hoping is and the UFT has got their con regular contract negotiations going on now. And I hear contrary things about when that might be settled. So I'm just praying that that whole negotiate, well, number one, that the UFT and CSA really stand strong and, and push for a very realistic, aggressive class size reduction plan. But number two, that it doesn't get caught up in arbitration and slow the whole process down in some way that makes it um, dysfunctional. Bueno, mi gente. That's all we have time for today. Thank you for joining us. I want to thank Melissa Williams, Jessica Lerner, and of course, the incomparable Lainey Hampson. We need your help. We need you to donate to WBAI to make sure that this type of quality programming like Talk Out of School continues. Please make a donation by calling 212-209-2950. Again, that number to donate is 212 212- 209-2950. You can also make a donation online at WBAI.org. That's WBAI.org. Until next time, mi gente, you already know, love always wins.